Father, we thank you for your lavish love, and we thank you that in Christ you have made us worthy to be called your sons and daughters. And I ask that as we open up your word, as we look at your story, as we see the life of Jacob and Esau, that your spirit would lavish us with your love and that we would experience the joy of surrender and coming home to an eternal relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Open our hearts and our minds to see you, to hear you, to know you, and to follow you with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. All right, so despite how good we may appear to be this morning, I want to go ahead and just put the skunk on the table. We're a mess. Our families are a mess. Our heart is a mess. And we make a mess of our lives and our relationships. Are you willing to admit that with me this morning? Okay, you're willing to admit with me that underneath the warm clothes and the Sunday faces, things are going on that are pretty messed up. That's good because I'm glad to know that I'm not alone, but we can all share that confession together. Now, it's a week that we've all been waiting for. It's also a week that stirs up a little anxiety and maybe even some dread because there's nothing like Thanksgiving or Christmas, for that matter, that exposes our mess. If you've been denying the mess, if you've been avoiding the mess, the holidays are inevitably a crisis of reality. So what do we do with the mess that's in our hearts? What do we do with the messiness in our lives? That is the question this morning. And it's the question that we bring to God together as we look at the narrative of Jacob and Esau. Because in this part of God's story, we have a narrative that's all about how sin makes a mess of our identity. And yet, how God's promise overcomes because God passionately pursues a people for his own purposes. Today we're going to be in Genesis, quite frankly, all over the place. We're going to cover this story and there's a lot. But before we get in, I want to um, catch us up on our storyline, not going back to the very beginning, but starting with Abraham. Let's say this together. Abraham is chosen by God to father a people to represent God to the world. Through Isaac, God tests Abraham's faith and provides in his obedience. Then Esau forfeits his inheritance to Jacob, who carries on God's covenant promise. I've broken this story down into two parts, and the story of God continues like this. Isaac prays hard for his wife because she can't have a child. Then one day, God answers, and Rebekah becomes pregnant with twins. And even inside her womb, the two children fight with each other. And so she asks God, why is this happening to me? And God tells her, your sons will become two rival nations, 
One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the firstborn son is born, he is very red and hairy. So much so that he looks like he's already wearing clothes. And so they call him Esau, which sounds like the Hebrew word for hair. Parenthetically, in English, it sounds like the noise a donkey makes. It does, doesn't it? When the second son is born, his hand is holding Esau's heel. So they name him Jacob, which means grabbing the heel. And it's also a Hebrew euphemism for someone who is a deceiver. And as the two boys grow up, Esau becomes an expert hunter who loves the outdoors. And Jacob becomes a great cook who prefers the peace and quiet of the tent. Isaac favors Esau. Rebekah favors Jacob. And one day when Jacob is cooking some stew, Esau comes home exhausted from a hunt. And he says to Jacob, dude, I am starving. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, dude, you look terrible. I'll give you some of my stew, but you'll have to trade me something for it. And so Esau replies, what do you want? I'll give you anything. I'm dying here. And Jacob says, trade me your inheritance. For your inheritance, I'll give you some of this red stew. And very hastily, Esau says, what good is my inheritance if I starve to death? And so Esau makes an oath, trading away his inheritance as the firstborn son for a bowl of red stew. Now, years later, when Isaac is old and almost blind, he calls for Esau and says, I'm an old man and very soon I'll die. Please hunt some wild game for me and prepare it just the way I like it. And then before I die, I'll pass on the blessing that belongs to you, my handsomely hairy firstborn son. Well, Rebecca overhears this conversation. And so when Esau leaves to hunt, she says to Jacob, do exactly as I tell you. Get two of the finest goats from our flocks and I'll prepare your father's favorite dish with them. And then I'll take the goat skins and make a suit of hair for you. You'll dress in some of Esau's old clothes and you'll look and smell just like him when you take this food to your father. And as he eats it, he'll think you're Esau and he'll give you your brother's blessing. So Jacob takes the meal to his father, pretending he is Esau. And Isaac wonders, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are Esau's. So he asks, are you really my son Esau? Yes, of course, Jacob answers. If you are, then come here and kiss your father, Isaac says. So Jacob goes and kisses Isaac. And when Isaac feels his hairiness and smells his outdoorsiness, he's convinced that it really is Esau. So Isaac gives his blessing to Jacob saying, may God pass on to you the blessing he promised to Abraham. Your family will grow large and become a great nation and other nations will become your servants. God will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And Esau hates Jacob. 
And he says to himself, when my father's dead, I'm going to kill my little brother. When Rebecca finds out that Jacob's in danger, she sends him far away to live with his uncle. And I want to pause right now and unpack the narrative so far. What does this family know about God? Let's go back to the family of origin for Jacob and Esau. What do they know about God? They know about Adam and Eve. They know about Cain and Abel and the flood and the Tower of Babel and God's promise and covenant to their grandfather. So they know how to live in a right relationship with God because of the example and the teaching that's been passed down to them. They, they get it. They're the family of God. They're the people of God. They are carrying the promises and the purposes of God, and they know what that means. It means what? Hearing and obeying God's word, walking with faith and not fear, trusting God for provision and protection, waiting on God with hope, regardless of the circumstances or timing, willing to give up anything and everything in order to put God first. The family knows God. They know his promises. They know the story and their place within it and how to live in grateful response. And so the scene is perfectly set. And then God speaks. Look at Genesis 25. Rebecca The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, they will be rivals. One will be stronger. The older will serve the younger. What is God doing? God is speaking again. And God tells them what's going to happen even before it happens. Why would God do that? Simple. So that they would hear and obey, trust and wait. And no matter what the circumstances, they will always put God first and walk in his promises. But here's the catch. Every single person in this family does the absolute opposite. They've fallen far from original glory and have become a case study for original sin. Isaac favors Esau. Rebekah favors Jacob. You don't have to be a licensed therapist to know that that's not going to go well. Like Adam, Isaac is passive and disengaged. Like Eve, Rebecca is controlling and impatiently takes matters into her own hands. This family is messed up. Their hearts are messed up, their family's messed up, and they're making a greater mess of the mess their lives really is. And as I'm engaging and wrestling with God in this word, it raises a question. How am I like Isaac in this story? What, what am I doing when I find myself being passive? What am I doing when I find myself being disengaged from what's going on around me? How does my passivity and my disengagement contribute to the dysfunction of the people around me? How am I like Isaac? How how am I like Rebecca in this story? What am I doing when I find myself being impatient? What am I doing when I find myself taking control? 
And how does my impatience and my control negatively impact me and the people around me? What about you? In the midst of this mess, Esau and Jacob, like Cain and Abel, become feuding rivals. Their differences separate them rather than unite them, and they're demanding and manipulative and selfish. It's a mess. Now, I get Esau. All right, he's like the Marlboro man and the rough and often silly Dr. Pepper Tin dude. You know what I'm talking about? That's Esau. I get Esau because when I'm hungry, I'll do anything for food. You remember, you remember that commercial um, in the 70s, some of you? Remember that? It's, it's, I know, I'm actually getting old. Um, you remember that commercials in the 70s for Hungry Jack Biscuits? Yeah? Hungry! Hungry Jack! Gobble them down and the plate comes back for Hungry Jack. Remember that? That's me. Right? I know what it's like to be really hungry and angry about it. Hangry. I know what it's like to be in a hangry moment and make food more important than anything else. I'm not proud of that. Food is often a coping mechanism for my mess. Food is often the way I self-medicate rather than trust God. It can be an idol in my life. And here's the truth about idols. Seemingly positive short-term gratification never justifies the negative long-term consequences. It's like taking Jack's Link beef jerky and messing with Sasquatch. You know those commercials? You remember the commercial with the beach hole? No? You want to see it? Good. Here it is. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) The seemingly positive short-term gratification never justifies the negative long-term consequences. Almost every time what seems good and fun in the moment turns out really bad in the long run. But you know what? We do it anyway. We're like Esau. We throw off our identity for physical appetites and worldly passions. If it doesn't work out the way we want, then we pretend it doesn't really matter. And yet, in our guilt, we show contempt for the things that we had and lost. In our shame, we grieve the things we want but don't receive. And in our arrogance, we despise God as if it's his fault. 
We're like Esau. So it raises the question as we wrestle with God and his word this morning, what idol do I need to cast down? In what area of my life do I struggle with delayed gratification? What decisions am I making out of expediency rather than doing what's right? Where am I finding fulfillment outside of God's plan and promises? What's my bowl of red stew? I also get Jacob. He wants his father's affirmation. He wants his mother's approval. He wants his parents' lavish love, even if it, mean, if it means pretending to be somebody that he's not. Jacob is a heel grabber. He's false. Remember, it means deceiver. We call it wearing a mask or trying to keep up with appearances. You know what we should really call it? We should really call it putting on the goat. That's what it looks like. You ever seen the Poser Mobile commercial? This is what putting on the goat looks like. You're welcome. (laughs) Putting on the goat never pays off. People see through it. Dressing up, hanging out with the group, buying more stuff doesn't make people like you more. And the people who affirm your facades are only doing it because they're approval seekers too. The truth is, The more you're not yourself, the more people actually feel sorry for you. And so as we wrestle with this story, as we wrestle with God and his word, it raises yet another question. How am I putting on the goat? In what areas of my life am I so unhappy with who I am that I want to be like somebody else? How do I pretend to be someone I'm not thinking other people will like me? How do I clothe myself in ways that are inconsistent with my God-given identity and the purposes and promises that he has for me? Where am I seeking my worth and my affirmation other than in God and in the things of God? What are my goatskins? What are your goatskins? We're a mess. We're a mess. Everyone in Jacob's family, including Jacob, and everyone in our family, including us, are in very different but very real ways infected by sin. And we succumb to an independent spirit, making it all about ourselves and further contributing to our mess. 
by stressing and striving in the flesh rather than believing and receiving from God. That's the mess of our heart. That's the mess in our homes. That's the mess that we contribute to making even more messy. Now, fortunately, it's not the end of the story. Remember I said the story is in two parts. Part one, striving. Part two, receiving. Many years later, Jacob is terrified that his sins have finally caught up with him. And that his brother is about to kill him. So he cries out to God, O God of Abraham and Isaac, you told me to come back to my country. You said I'd prosper here. And I'm not worthy of the kindness you've shown me. Because when I left this land, I only had my walking stick. And now I am many. So please, God, rescue me from my brother. You said my descendants would be as the sand on the seashore, so come through with your promise and deliver me. Jacob is greatly stressed out. And he spends the night waiting and thinking about his brother's coming, and so he can't sleep, and so he wanders off to be by himself, and God shows up. And Jacob wrestles with God. He struggles with God all night long until God finally breaks him. God touches Jacob's hip. And it immediately breaks, sending Jacob to the ground. But Jacob won't give up. He won't let go of God. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And it's here that Jacob comes to the point of his greatest and most profound transformation. Picture this scene. If you're wrestling and struggling with God, right? WWF, Mexican wrestling mask, however you want to picture it, go for it. But if you're wrestling with God and God breaks your hip and you go to the ground because you can't stand anymore, how are you wrestling with God? on the ground, on your, on your belly, with your face looking up, with your hands like this, and you say to God, I'm not going to let you go. What's Jacob holding on to? He's holding on to God's ankle. Prevailing with God doesn't come from striving for God's approval. Prevailing with God doesn't come from striving to please God. Prevailing with God comes from a broken and a contrite heart. It comes from clinging to God, not grasping for equality with God. As it was for Jacob, so it is for us. The blessing of God happens when we cease striving and start surrendering. 
It's such a profound transformation for Jacob that God changes his name. In that moment, God says, what's your name? Jacob, he says. It's a confession. It's an acknowledgement of his guilt. He, he says this with shame. Jacob, I am the deceiver. And in this moment of surrender, God pours out his blessing. God says, no, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which is Hebrew for may God prevail. And so Jacob names the place, the face of God saying, I've seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. And he's able to go back and go to sleep for just a moment because he's wakened and he goes to the edge of his camp and he sees Esau coming with 400 men. And so Jacob hobbles towards his brother, bowing seven times. But you know what Esau does? He runs to Jacob and gives him a great big hug. Both brothers shed tears of joy and Esau forgives Jacob and the two brothers are reconciled. And then Jacob and all of his growing reunited family move back to the promised land of Canaan together, the older and the stronger serving the younger. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. And I want to know who needs the gospel this morning. Somebody say, I need the gospel. Come on now. You've been told to be ashamed. You've been told you don't measure up. You've been told you're not good enough. So you've been striving to clean yourself up. You've been striving to prove your worth. You've been striving to win anyone's approval. But you're tired of managing your sin. You're frustrated with continuously making moral adjustments. And with all the religious masks and all the religious talk and all the religious walk, you've forgotten who you really are. Trying to clean up your mess with a messy rag just makes everything messier. But there's good news. I want to tell you some good news this morning. Jesus is the better Jacob. Jesus is the better Esau. Jesus doesn't grasp at the heel of equality with God, but rather he surrenders his divine privileges, being born in our likeness into a long genealogy of messy people, including deceivers, adulterers, prostitutes, and murderers. Jesus joins our mess. And yet he finds his worth and receives his identity solely in his relationship with the father who says, this is my son who I love with whom I am well pleased. 
So with his identity, Jesus does what Jacob couldn't do. He does what Esau couldn't do. He does what we don't do. Jesus doesn't bow down to the idols in the desert or succumb to deception or make a bigger mess. He waits and trusts and obeys the word of God. He doesn't shrink back or pull a sword in the garden. He clings to God and overcomes fear with faith so that on the cross he forgives our sins and he wins the Father's approval for us. And when he's raised from the dead, he secures our heavenly blessing on our behalf. Y'all, that's good news. Amen. In Christ, we're heirs of everlasting hope. And so we can cry out, Abba, Father, from a place of surrender, from a place of a yielded and broken and contrite heart, we can cry out, Heavenly Father, loving, lavish, generously providing, faithful, trustworthy Father. We can cry out and with a sure and certain hope, know that we have been made worthy to be his sons and daughters. And that nothing can separate us from his love and acceptance of us in Christ Jesus. That's good news. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that means we don't have to strive for it. We don't have to earn it. And there's nothing we can do to lose it. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And Jesus is how God blesses us. Jesus is what we've been given so that we can really start living. So let's receive our inheritance in Christ. Let's treasure our inheritance in Christ. Let's live out of our inheritance in Christ and nothing less. Hey, this Thanksgiving, when you're in the middle of the mess, you don't have to make it messier. The gospel enables you to be present and actively engaged. The gospel enables you to be patient and wait on God. The gospel enables you to build unity in all of your relationships. The gospel enables you to be a kind, encouraging, and generous sibling. So let's be who we are in Christ. We pray with me. Abba, Father, we come humbly to you this morning. And we ask for your blessing. We acknowledge our mess and we thank you that you clean us up in Christ. Thank you for removing our guilt and shame. Thank you for taking away and remembering our sins no more. Thank you for making us new creations in him. And so as we come to his table as we eat the bread and drink the cup. Pour out your spirit upon us. Sear the truth of our identity in our hearts and give us faith. 
that we might hear and obey, trust and wait, put you above all else, enjoy the glorious riches of your grace and live in grateful response by being who you have created and redeemed us to be. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.